Welcome to Clets Heads, the podcast about bilingual children. My name is Sharon Onsworth, linguist at Radboud University in Nijmegen, the Netherlands, a mother of two bilingual children. In this episode of Clets Heads, we're talking about what for many parents in bilingual families can be quite a frustrating situation. Children who understand both of their languages but only actively use one of them, typically the same language that they use at school. We talk about the extent to which this matters for their bilingual language development, and I give you my top tips to help maintain children's minority or heritage language. In Let's Clets, we speak to Ellen Rose Campbell from the Rutu Foundation about the language-friendly school, and our Clets Head of the Week is the 19-year-old Torren. He's from the Netherlands, but spent most of his childhood in Hong Kong. And he tells us how his parents bribed him to go to Dutch school with pancakes. Keep listening to find out more. I speak to my children in English, and in general, they speak English back to me. Sometimes, though, they prefer to use Dutch, and we find ourselves having a very bilingual conversation. I'm sure this situation is one which many parents listening will recognise. We spoke in an earlier episode of Kletzeds about language mixing and how it's a completely normal part of being bilingual. Nevertheless, bilingual conversations where mum or dad speak one language and the children consistently reply in another usually the language they speak at school, can be quite a source of frustration for many parents. You consistently speak Italian, German or Polish to your daughter and she only speaks the school language back to you. Or the grandparents come to visit from Italy or Germany or Poland and your son refuses to speak to them in their language even though he knows that they don't understand the other one. For many parents... Such situations are both frustrating and uncomfortable. But what should you do? If you find yourself in such a situation as a parent, is it time to sacrifice your desire to raise your child bilingually for the sake of better communication? Or should you persevere and carry on regardless? Aside from any personal frustrations you might have, does it actually matter if a bilingual child only actively uses one of his or her languages. In this episode of Kletzeds, we talk about language use with Erica Hoff, researcher at Florida Atlantic University in the United States. During our conversation, we talk about the minority language. By this, we mean the language that's not spoken at school. So in the Netherlands, it means the non-Dutch language. In the examples I just mentioned then, that would be Italian, German or Polish. In the research that Erica talks about, which was carried out in the US, the minority language is Spanish. The majority language in that case is English, and here in the Netherlands, it's of course Dutch. I started by asking Erica whether it actually matters if your child always answers in the majority language, even when you speak the minority language. We have pretty clear evidence from studying the Spanish-English bilingual uh, children in Florida that, that you need to speak a language to become a competent uh, speaker of that language. Children who only hear the language but don't use it are likely to develop the ability to understand the language, but not to speak it. And if we look at 
adults, young adults who grew up in Spanish-English bilingual homes, a very common pattern of bilingualism is what is called passive bilingualism. Right. So these are young adults who grew up hearing English and Spanish, and as adults, they will say, well, I understand Spanish, but I don't speak it. Right, and, right. I, and I think they're right. They don't uh, speak it because we see even the beginnings of that in uh, three to five-year-old children. That is, the children who use English more will be much better at their comprehension skills in Spanish than their expressive skills. It's a, it's a common profile of bilingual proficiency that in the minority language, the children, well, if you look at their two languages, they're pretty balanced bilinguals in their ability to understand. But if you look at their ability to speak, they are much stronger in the majority language and weaker in the minority language. Right. So here, for example, I often hear from uh, students in my classes who come from the south of the country where uh, parents maybe speak dialect to them. Uh, well, dialect or language, it depends on your perspective. But uh, Limburgs, for example, they say they understand it perfectly, but they can't speak it themselves. Right. And it's an interesting uh, pattern because there's no such thing in monolingual development as people who only understand right. their one language right. but don't speak yeah. it. And, and I think we have some pretty good evidence that one factor that contributes to that is this pattern that we see very early on of children preferring to speak the majority language and making uh, choices at home, um, whether their parents like their choices or not, the children are making choices to use uh, the majority well, language. That's arguably something you need to get used to as a parent, right? Not being happy with your children's choices. <laughs> <laughs> that's a bigger question. <laughs> <laughs> so what? So I can imagine, uh, you know, if you're a parent listening, you might be thinking, oh, well, well, what can I do? Do you have any tips for what you can do as a parent to they, encourage your child to speak well, the language more? Um, there are books written by parents who have successfully and proudly raised bilingual children, and some of them will have rules about language use that they uh, enforce at home. And, and I don't doubt that this is helpful for their children's bilingual development. I, I worry about the consequences for normal parent-child mm -hmm. interaction. Mm -hmm. um, I think if someone did that to me, I would be less inclined to initiate conversation. And you, right. And my opinion as a developmental psychologist um, is that you don't want to do anything to discourage your children right. from right. talking to you. So then what do you do? You can either accept that your bilingual child is not going to be two monolinguals in one brain. Um, well, we could argue that that's never the case That's anyway. right. Um, but if you want to encourage the development of the ability uh, also to speak the language, my best guess is that the way to do this is to put the child in circumstances where 
everybody else is a monolingual speaker of the other language. And what they do a little bit with the grandparents who are visiting, they would not persist in doing if they were immersed uh, in the other language. Right. Now, those circumstances uh, can be difficult uh, to arrange, so it's easier to give that advice than uh, perhaps uh, to implement it. But, but I think it's good advice if you can manage it. And just as an anecdote, um, I have someone who works for me who's from Peru, and she wants her children to be Spanish-English bilingual. And she took her children to Peru to visit the family that's right. still there. But she took both of the children. And so they just spoke English to each other. Oh, what she decided yeah. she needs to do, and I think correctly, is take one child at a time. Because you really, it is human nature to do what's easier. Absolutely. And what we yeah. see is the more dominant in English the children become, the more they do this refusing uh, or selectively choosing to speak uh, only English. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think kids are just like adults, right? Mm -hmm. They, they want to take the, the easy route. And I think your example there shows also that parenting bilingual children needs a bit of an effort sometimes, right? Mm. You, do, you do need to think about it to try and make certain things happen. I think there's no... Uh, Yes, actually, I'll, I'll quote a friend of mine who is raising uh, French-English uh, bilingual children, and she says, you know, even in Canada where there's lots of opportunities uh, for uh, French uh, exposure, it's a project. You have to choreograph your child's life to be in circumstances that make use of the other language. Yeah, it's unnatural circumstances where mm -hmm. you need to use that language. Erica talked about bringing up bilingual children as a project. Such an idea may be more acceptable to some parents than to others. But regardless of whether you want to see it as a project... It's good to realise that bringing up bilingual children can sometimes require some effort. If you want to know what you can do to make sure your child uses both languages actively, or what advice to give to parents if you're a speech-language therapist or teacher, stay tuned. At the end of the episode, I'll give you my top tips to help make this happen. But first... We're going to hear from our Kletzhead of the Week. Kletzhead of the Week. I'm Torwin and I live in Utrecht in the Netherlands. And I speak English, Dutch and a very tiny bit of Chinese. English, Dutch and a tiny bit of Chinese. So do you want to yeah. tell us uh, about how you have learned all those different languages? I spoke Dutch with my parents, but when I was seven, I moved to Hong Kong because uh, my dad had to move there for his job. And then I lived there from the age of seven to uh, about 18. Right. And in that time, obviously, well, first of all, I had to learn English. But also at school, I, I had a Chinese classes that I took for until about I was 16. And uh, I remember a bit of it, not much, but... How, how old are you now? I'm 19. Already you can't remember much of the Chinese? Yeah, it, it's just a very complicated language. It's just very different from it, like English or Dutch, that there's no alphabet. And honestly, even at my peak, I wasn't very good at Chinese. So to say, yeah, I've forgotten most of it. My brother's a lot better than me. Uh-huh. So what was it like learning Chinese then, apart from being difficult? 
it's also a very interesting uh, insight, I think, into Chinese cult because these classes weren't just about learning Chinese. They're also learning a bit about uh, China. So, for example, we did calligraphy classes and stuff like that where you just learn a bit more about this different culture that's completely different from ours, really. Yeah. So you were in Hong Kong for a large part of your schooling then. Um, So you went to an international school? I went to three different schools in Hong Kong. The first one was, I'd say, a mix between local, international, and that's primary school, obviously. And then I finished my primary school at a full-on international school. It was, I think there were like 60 different nationalities represented in that school alone uh, for middle school and high school. I went to actually quite a local school, so like all the classes were given in English, except I, pretty much 99% of the students were uh, from Hong Kong. When I uh, first moved there, I was the only one who wasn't from Hong Kong in, in the school, I think. How did you experience that? Again, because I said I moved from an international school to this local school, so it is a very interesting change. A lot of time uh, during breaks, for example, you'd have uh, Cantonese being spoken. You pick up a bit of that, and I think also what's it good to mention is that international schools, I think, have a very sort of a bubble often. Everyone has the same international background where they moved uh, to Hong Kong or they have from somewhere else or they have parents who are from somewhere else. It's a bit of a generalization, but I think they all have a very similar uh, approach or a way of looking at life, perhaps. Yeah. And then you move to this very local school of all these kids who are just like they're from Hong Kong. Their parents are from Hong Kong. Their grandparents are from Hong Kong. They grew up, they lived in Hong Kong their entire life. And you sort of escape that international bubble, I think which is honestly very good for my development, I'd say. In what way then? I'm curious. So again, I think it comes back to this different sort of cultures uh, thing because even like little things like the food they brought or the way they uh, interacted with each other, it's quite a different insight or a way of um, approaching life, I'd say. Well, I have a sort of mentality that being exposed to different ways of living and of different cultures and different approaches, it can only help because then you you have these different perspectives and obviously you can see the benefits of one and the benefits of the other and you can see what might not work well in one, not work so well in the other. Yeah, that's one of the main things that has helped my development, I think. Yeah, and so I'm curious now, so you're back in the Netherlands and, um, and what are you doing and is it any way related to this international perspective that you've gained? Well, I study uh, politics, philosophy, economics at the Utrecht University. Yeah. And first of all, it's a, it's a very international course. I've almost gone back into that international bubble, you could say. Um, yeah. We've got uh, people from all over the world taking part. It's a course given in English. So we've got people from Asia, from South America, from Europe, obviously, from anywhere. So I think the main benefit that I've got is I think I'm I'm quite good at knowing how to sort of switch and interact between the different uh, cultures, between different people. Yeah, yeah. So intercultural communication, yep. it's called, right? And it, it, going a bit back to, now to the, the language side of things, would you call yourself bilingual then? Yeah, I, I call myself bilingual. How important is it for you to be bilingual? In all honesty, it's, it's all I know. Could, but I think it's especially important because I've grown up overseas and I know the Netherlands... Let's face it, it's not a very big country. Not a lot of people speak Dutch. So to have you know, a language like English is, 
in my opinion, is essential if you're going to go anywhere or interact anywhere with anyone yeah. outside the Netherlands. That's it's just important. And um, I know you followed Dutch education abroad, like heritage language schools, it's often called, or community language schools, where you, uh, you go to classes in a language that's not the majority or the school language uh, in yeah. the place where you live. What, what was that like? My primary school years, I actually went to a physical a school on the other side of Hong Kong from where I live. I'd go there every Wednesday after my, you could say, English school, my English classes. Uh, and I'd have class for about two hours. I don't remember the exact uh-huh. time. This is a way of sort of bringing a lot of Dutch people together in one place, right? A lot of Dutch families from Hong Kong would send their kids here. And this is where we'd almost, yeah. this is where we'd all meet up. We'd have discussions, we'd have fun, all that sort of stuff. Obviously, seven-year-old me didn't enjoy it so much. I'd rather be at home playing video games, but... <laughs> I have a seven-year-old at home who would probably agree with you if I tried to send him to English yeah. class. But I had a deal with my parents that uh, every Wednesday, because we went to Dutch school, as sort of compensation as our reward, we'd have a pancake day for So we'd have pancakes for dinner. And uh-huh. that tradition is still stands today, even though I'm not at Dutch school and none of my brothers and sisters are at Dutch school. Every Wednesday is still pancake day oh, in, yeah. uh, in our house. That's, uh, yeah, that's a fun little and- fact about us. Yeah, that's nice. There are lots of multilingual children and uh, young adults like yourself growing up here in the Netherlands who speak a different language than Dutch yeah. at home. And some of them do attend these heritage language schools. In the last episode of the of the podcast, we spoke to somebody uh, about this very question. Though they're not always considered that beneficial, I think. How do you feel about that when you hear that? For one, I think there were multiple benefits. Firstly, it does keep you sort of uh, up to date. It does keep you sort of linked to your home country. Uh-huh. So, for example, we we wouldn't just learn Dutch in these schools. You'd also have discussions about what's happening in the Netherlands. It maintains that link a bit. In Hong Kong, I know there's also parents who are Dutch and kids who don't speak any Dutch at all. They have very little or to no interest in the Netherlands. They don't view themselves as Dutch anymore. A second reason that my parents would always tell me is um, there's always that with that... Um, aim of when I grew older, when I was 18, 19, like now, I would have the opportunity to study in the Netherlands. And knowing yeah. Dutch when you come back, it is just, it's beneficial. Because, I mean, when you live here, everyone does speak English, except I think you are missing out a bit if you don't speak Dutch. And I do find, you know, when I compare myself to some of my international friends here, when we are meeting for new Dutch people, for example, or we are in a Dutch, uh, more Dutch community, it's a lot easier for me to sort of join that group and become a part of that group than it is for some of my international friends because my, my friends, they don't speak Dutch. Yeah, so I think another, it just, it helps you keep your option open and in the sense that it helps maintain that link to your home country and it maintains that option that your child can go back to your home country and have an almost native experience alongside the international experience they've already had. Yeah. And even even I guess if you're not intending or there's not even an option or an interest for, a, you know, a child to go to the other country when they're older to study or to work or anything like that. There's also the question of being able to talk to you, to your family, to your grandparents, because often they won't speak the new language that you're learning. So you use English a lot during the day, but you, you know, Dutch is, uh, is your home language. So w- which do you prefer to speak? Ah, uh, this is a tough one. In the summer, I'll spend three months with my uh, my family and purely my family. And then 
I'll be speaking Dutch every day, nonstop. And at the end of it, honestly, I prefer speaking Dutch because that's what I've done for the last three months. But then, for example, now I'm in March. I spent the last eight months surrounded by my international friends and a bit of Dutch here and there, but mainly English. And then goes back to English. And I do prefer English now, I think. Yeah. So it changes. Yeah. Reading and writing, it's English no matter what. But speaking wise, it, it can depend on the exposure of, to the language I have at that moment. Yeah. So I think that will be reassuring to many parents who are listening that to know that it does change right because typically what happens by the end of a school year children will often be more Dutch speaking and then maybe we'll go to visit some family who speak the other language during the summer and then all of a sudden we get a boost again yeah of that of that other language you recognize that then yeah that's exactly what happens it's yeah uh, I always had this thing in high school that when I came back from holidays with my family I suddenly have a Dutch accent again and then uh, over time it would sort of disappear and then I'd have a, fam- a holiday with my family again and my teachers would be like, ah the Dutch accent is back in your English in my English yeah okay yeah so they so they influence each other then the two languages I suppose so yeah, yeah. you said you can't you can't remember any uh, Chinese can you teach me something I can't speak Chinese at all um well hello you can say ni hao ni hao ni hao yeah yeah and just a quick side there's like a different way there's meant to be like a specific way of pronouncing these with like tones and stuff and i yeah i gave that up at the age of eight so <laughs> i just say the pronunciation without the tones but it's ni hao is hello and thank yeah. you for example is she 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 yeah if you want to say goodbye it's uh tai jiang tai jiang okay she yeah. she and tai jiang toren tai jiang let's head Okay, so we're talking today about whether a child needs to speak both languages to be bilingual. And I'm sitting here with Erica Hoff from Florida Atlantic University in the United States. We've said it does matter if you want your child to become the bilingual who really does speak both languages, then it does matter that they, that they do practice those languages when they're children. Why does it matter? Well, um, a variety of reasons have been suggested, and these are not um, competing explanations. All of these things uh, can be true. One is it's really when you have to produce a language that you realize what you know and what you don't know. It's sort of easy to sit and listen and think, oh, I'm sort of following. I'm, I'm okay in Dutch. Um, but then when you have to uh, produce it, you realize, well, you don't actually know um, as much as you thought. Um, another thing that happens is when you speak a language, you get feedback. Um, and not it doesn't have to be feedback from other people correcting you. It can be feedback in the sense of you realize that you meant to buy a round trip ticket and you didn't. You only bought a one way uh, ticket. That's feedback that something you said was not entirely clear. Um, uh, Other more uh, sort of internally psychological um, explanations have to do with the kind of knowledge you need in your head in order to speak a language as opposed to the knowledge you need in your head to understand a language. To understand a language, you need to know that these sounds correspond to these meanings. To speak a language, in addition to knowing that, you also have to know how to produce those sounds. Just the way um, if you want to knit, you have to know how to knit. If you want to hit a ball, you have to know 
how to hit a ball. There is something to learning the motor component of speech that you simply will never learn if you never speak uh, the language. Right. So by motor component, you mean like putting your tongue in the right yes. place to mm -hmm. produce the right sound so that you can get the word out. Yeah. Right. Right. So practice makes perfect. Well, practice is necessary for even coming close to perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Practicing a language is important for several reasons then. Quite simply, it teaches your mouth how to get everything in the right place when you want to make a certain sound. When you actively use a language yourself, you also realise what you do or don't know. For example, if you want to tell mum that you don't want to eat sprouts, but you can't think of the word sprouts in the language in question, you'll quickly realise that you don't know that word. You simply won't know what to say. In a situation like this, it's possible that mum might say the right word herself. And precisely because you just tried to do the same but failed, you're more likely to pick up the word when you hear it. If you ask for broccoli when you actually meant to ask for sprouts, I can't imagine that you would, but anyway, you'll get what Erica called feedback. In a situation like this, things don't turn out the way you intended and you become aware of the fact that something you just said probably wasn't quite right. Sometimes children are really conscious of such learning experiences, but quite often they're not. What's clear, though, is that learning experiences such as these only occur when children actively use the language themselves. So far in this episode, we've focused on bilingual children's use of the minority language or heritage language at home. More often than not, this language stays at home and isn't used at school. Sometimes it's not even welcome at school. This can, of course, depend on the language. If your home language is English, like my kids, then at some point or another you will end up using it at school. The same, of course, holds for any language which is also taught as a school subject. Here in the Netherlands, as in many places, that would be French, German or Spanish. But there are, of course, many other languages that bilingual children speak at home. And research suggests that allowing children to make use of these languages at school, or at least not forcing them to leave them at the school gate, can be beneficial in a number of ways. This is exactly why our next guest started an initiative to help schools support, promote and definitely not prohibit the use of bilingual children's home languages at school. Let's let's. My name is Ellen Rose Campbell. I live in Amsterdam, the Netherlands, and I am the director of the Rutte Foundation for Intercultural Multilingual Education and co-founder of the Language Friendly School. So tell me about the Ruto Foundation. What do you, what do you do? So the Ruto Foundation is a, a non-profit organization that um, focuses on children who speak another language at home than the one that is used in schools. And uh, Ruto means roots in Sranam, which is a language that is used in, in Suriname, my home country. And uh, it means that we find it important that the roots of children are well-nourished because that means that uh, they can uh, grow 
We know that children who speak uh, the language or languages at home and they speak them well and they are proud of those languages and of who they are, then the chance is uh, bigger that they will also learn the school language well and of course all the other subjects. And this is something that in a lot of countries isn't always recognized. Mm-hmm. So what we do as an organization, well, we raise consciousness about the importance of integrating and valuing the lang- uh, home languages of uh, pupils, and also about the damage, the social emotional damage that can be the result when teachers uh, prohibit the languages of the children, because this also happens a lot, and also uh, punishments uh, are still uh, doled out to children who uh, speak a different language than the school language. Well, we also develop a multilingual uh, teaching material so that children can use both languages for learning and to allow their parents to help them with their schoolwork. Yeah, maybe before we start talking about the language-friendly school, you can tell us a bit about your own background. I studied law in the Netherlands. I am, uh, as I said, uh, from Suriname, and when I was 14, I came to the Netherlands. And I did a PhD uh, research about the human rights of indigenous women in Suriname. So that had nothing to do with education <laughs> or linguistics. But what happened is after my, uh, my PhD, I was part of a project to document the traditional knowledge of indigenous uh, peoples. They said the language is, uh, is deteriorating because uh, just like in the Netherlands, in Suriname, it's exclusively uh, instruction in Dutch. And just like in the Netherlands, we have a lot of children in Suriname who do not speak Dutch at home. Mm-hmm. Of course, a far greater percentage in Suriname. But this caused uh, my interest in, in language and culture and education. And also, I was living in the Netherlands, and uh, my daughter was born, who has an English-speaking father. So we uh, raised uh, our daughter uh, bilingually. And what I noticed is that her teachers had no idea what it meant for a child to be raised uh, multilingually. What I noticed is that they basically uh, treated my daughter as a monolingual student. Mm-hmm. From the beginning, the teachers have always had a, a lower uh, impression of my daughter. And one of them said, well, of, of course, she's not going to go very far of my daughter who was six. Wow. She didn't know that this six-year-old at that moment could read English better than Dutch. I mean, everything worked out fine with her, and she's now studying at a very good university in the U.S. But what I noticed is that it did impact her self-esteem, and I still see that she has the feeling that she has to prove herself that she's not maybe smart enough. She has two highly uh, educated parents, one of which speaks the school language well, Dutch is my mother tongue. But of course, with kids with lower educated parents, where maybe both parents do not speak the school language, I think a lot of talent is being lost just because education is geared towards only one side of a multilingual child. And so this was then inspiration for you to start the language-friendly school? Yes, this uh, idea developed together with my colleague uh, Emmanuel Pichon Forsman, who is a linguist currently based in uh, the University of Toronto. We basically put together our experiences with schools in different countries where we mm-hmm. noticed that everywhere the, the context may be different, the languages spoken are different, 
But what unites them is the multilingualism of their students. We created a, a label for schools who commit not to punish, prohibit, or discourage children from using their uh, home languages at school and to allow them to develop their own language-friendly school plan that fits with their priorities. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that together with parents and the whole school team, but also the children, they develop a plan and they uh, look at, well, what can we do to make our school language-friendly? And it might be that some schools say, well, at this point, we only want to develop a multilingual school library. That is fine. We really believe in small steps. Right. Because there are other schools who have been doing this for years and have trained their team and they are incorporating the home languages into the classroom. And so by bringing together all these different schools, what we want to achieve is that they learn from each other, that they get inspiration and empowerment we, most schools who are doing this are in an environment where multilingualism is seen as a problem, as an obstacle, and they have a hard time finding colleagues who believe, who have the same values as them. So it's about creating a network amongst like-minded schools, but presumably also uh, not only attaching a label to schools that are maybe already doing a lot of these language-friendly practices, but presumably you also want to then encourage other schools to adopt language-friendly policies, even though they've maybe never even thought about it. Is that right? Absolutely. We had one school director who is uh, monolingual and who said, well, I don't understand everything about uh, this multilingual approach, but I just look at the kids. And I see it is good. I see how they react. And then I know this is the way to go. And what, what kinds of things does he see then? That they are really happy and, uh, and at ease. That um, there are kids uh, yeah, who uh, at first were maybe not saying much. But then they give them, for example, the role of taking new parents who speak their language, mm -hmm. give them a tour of the school. Right. And you see the kids shining and, and proud that he can do it. And especially if it's a, a language that not a lot of people speak. And also school directors also say that they notice that, that it's good for their team, but especially that it makes it easier for the teachers to teach. And we had one teacher who said that now that she is using uh, the, the multilingual knowledge of her students in the classroom, that very boring or previously very boring uh, grammar lessons suddenly mm -hmm. became, uh, she had a classroom full of uh, kids that were highly motivated to tell her how this particular grammatical issue, how that was dealt with in their language. So they were prepared, they were coming to class, and they couldn't wait to share their knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so she said, it has made my teaching so much easier. Which I think might sound counterintuitive to some people, right? Exactly, yeah. That is, I think, what is most difficult about this is that it is counterintuitive, that the idea is uh, you can learn a language, the best way to learn it if you are completely immersed in the language and do not use your other language or languages at all. Well, there has been over 40 years of research showing quite clearly that kids do better 
uh, actually the longer they uh, are educated and learn to read and write in the language that they speak best because that gives them the basis from which they can learn the, the second language. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How many language-friendly schools are there now? We now have 12, uh, with the majority in the Netherlands. Yeah. And uh, we have one in Canada and now since, uh, recently one in Spain. Right. So there's uh, plenty of scope for expansion. How many is your dream? How many would you like to see? Our dream is uh, in 2030, that's the deadline for the Sustainable Development Goals from UNESCO, which includes the commitment to provide quality education to all children, no child left behind, of which UNESCO has said that includes education in the language they speak best. And so we have set our goal in 2030 to have 10,000 language-friendly schools all around the world. Okay, so if anybody is listening and thinking as a teacher or as a parent, yeah, yeah, I think this may be something for our school. What should they do? They should go to our website, uh, languagefriendlyschool.org. They find a lot of information. There's also videos that you can see from what the schools are actually doing. And there's a registration form and you can sign up. Right. And what can they expect after that? So they have to make this certain commitment, right, for not prohibiting, discouraging, or I've forgotten what the other one was. Punishing. Uh, punishing, <laughs> yeah, important. Punishing the use of the home language at school, and then they have to make this uh, plan. And then do they get support writing this plan? Yes. Once they have signed up, they get access to um, to a web page where uh, we have developed a toolkit of language-friendly activities. These are activities that other schools are doing. They can um, be inspired by these ideas, but we also ask them to yeah, share their own activities mm-hmm. so the whole mm-hmm. network uh, can benefit. And also we have uh, a library of both scientific and more um, uh, popular articles and books around uh, multilingual education so that they don't need to go through the whole internet and find what they need because a lot of uh, colleagues still might uh, need to be convinced Yeah. or parents. So we try to make it as easy as possible for schools to be language friendly. Yeah. Just to finish then, what's in it for the school? I mean, I think you and me both think, yes, that's a great idea. But uh, I can imagine a school, you know, the school has got many things to do. Why, why should they become a language friendly school? So for schools who may have a lot of children speaking different languages and who don't really know what to do, There they can uh, find information and exchange practices with colleagues. For schools who have been uh, doing this for a long time, they might feel it important, that's what they say, that they can really um, show that to the outside world, Mm -hmm. that this is their approach, that they are a language-friendly school, that uh, parents who are looking for a school who find this important, that their children are being... um, welcomed and valued with their whole identity including their languages uh, that they can find the school yeah so if you're interested then get on over to languagefriendlyschool.org where you can find all the information thank you uh, ellen rose thank you <laughs> let's go 
something else that might affect how how many opportunities bilingual children have to practice uh, the minority language is you know how many speakers there are around them who actually speak that language right if if mom is the only speaker then it's only when you're with mom that you're going to be able to practice whereas if you've got grandma around the corner who speaks the minority language or friends uh, who are also bilingual or you know where you regularly visit somewhere you've got more more chances. Is that something that matters or is it just the sheer volume, the sheer amount of language that you hear? I think there's good evidence that the number of speakers that you hear a language from um, matters. Mm -hmm. It matters, as you said, because more speakers are more, you will get more volume um, of language exposure. It also seems to be the case that hearing a language from different speakers gives the language learner useful information. Because right. when you learn a language, you have to learn all the distinctions that matter. So right. the little distinction between put and but make a difference between pat and bat. Um, that's a teeny little acoustic difference. And learning language requires learning that it matters. On the other hand, the child also has to learn all the things that don't matter. Right. When I say pat and a male speaker says pat, acoustically they're very, very different. And it's the same word. So that kind of variety seems to be important for, to help children learn the difference between the differences that matter right. and the differences that don't matter. Um, that's a pure sort of information function of having multiple speakers. I also think, and sociologists have, have suggested this, that multiple speakers tells the child that this language has communicative value. Right. I can talk to a lot of people yeah, with this. Yeah, it's important. So it would, be, it would be good to show a child that there are other speakers out there who speak that language. I think or, so. And, think and other so. children? Uh, to find another, you know, there often there are parent-child uh, groups, you know, around a certain community, culture, language. Is it a... Well, this hasn't actually been studied, but I, I would think so, again, for the communicative mm -hmm. uh, value of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I know I remember a, um, a colleague from when I worked in Utrecht, an Italian speaker, she had a, a, a club of Italian uh, speakers and they did, you know, events, uh, cultural festival, uh, food, those kinds of uh, things, uh, everything to do with Italy. And she said the parents will be speaking Italian and the kids will be running around speaking in Dutch. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think even so, I think it's still important, right, because it, it shows you, it teaches the child that there is a, a different culture out there as, uh, as well, right? And so in that sense that the language is in, important too. Yeah, I think I I think that's very very valuable, and uh, you know, cultural attitudes and communicative value are all of these sort of harder to measure uh, things yeah. that, uh, nonetheless, uh, have an influence. That seems like a topic for a new episode of Clets Heads. In this episode, we learnt that if you want to increase your bilingual child's chances of continuing to use both languages when they grow up, it's important that they start early. Speaking the school language usually works out fine, but how do you get your child to use the other language too? These are my top tips to help make this happen. 
When your child is young, focus as much as possible on the other language, the minority or heritage language. Read to them or tell them stories in that language as much as you can. If they watch TV, have them do this in the minority language and as little as possible in the school language. This will provide a good basis for your child to actively use the minority language. Make sure you use the minority language as much as possible yourself. This will not only mean that your children will hear as much of that language as they can, you'll also create an environment in which talking the language in question is completely normal and almost expected. Make sure your child knows the right words to talk about the things he or she likes to talk about. If, for example, you have a football crazy daughter at home like I do, then tell them how to say referee and goalkeeper and kickoff in the heritage language. This will make it easier for him or her not to automatically switch to the school language when they're talking about this topic. As Erica said, it can help to create as many natural circumstances as possible in which your child can do nothing but use the heritage language. For example, if you have a babysitter, try to find one who mainly or only speaks that language. In this way, your child will be forced to communicate in Italian, German or Polish or whatever the language is that you speak at home. If you have the chance, try to video call with family members abroad on a regular basis. I guess this is something that a lot of us are doing more than we would do normally anyway right now, given that the pandemic means international travel has been heavily restricted. If you can, and it's easier for some than for others, try to spend time with other minority language speakers, especially children who can't speak the majority language. So Dutch here in the Netherlands or whatever that language is where you are. You can do this by visiting cousins, but you can also, for example, have your child attend a heritage language school. Though, as we heard from our Klet's Head of the Week, Torren, a bit of bribery might be needed to keep the motivation going. And when your children are older, you can explain to them that it's important to you that they keep using your language. For example, because you want them to be able to talk to grandma and granddad. Of course, this doesn't always work. Some children are more sensitive to this than others. But if it's important to you as a parent that your child actively uses both languages, it can sometimes help to discuss this wish with your child and, of course, your partner. It's also good to remember that raising a bilingual child is a dynamic process. I don't know of any research on the topic, but over the years, I've spoken to many parents who've told me that their children went through a phase where they refused to speak the heritage language, but at some point later changed their minds, sometimes consciously, sometimes less so, and started using it again. This won't happen with all children, of course, but it's worth bearing in mind that children's language choices can and do change over time. So even if your child seems to only want to speak the school language at the moment, this could change. Finally, even if the tips I've given you here don't help and your child keeps talking back to you in the school language when you speak a different one, it's worth remembering that if you're having a conversation, so if you understand each other, even though you're speaking different languages, 
your child is bilingual. Maybe not as bilingual as you would like, but bilingual nonetheless. And this is something you can be very proud of. If you want to know more about Kletzheads, go to kletzheadspodcast.org. That's where you'll also find more information about this episode. And if you want to make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to Kletzheads using your favourite podcast app. Make sure you select the English edition. And if you've enjoyed the show, why not share it with a friend? Thanks for listening. And as we say in Dutch, tot het volgende keer. <laughs>